Hello and welcome to The Double Life. I'm John Boozdar and this week we visit Milan in northern Italy and sit down with journalist, editor and media extraordinaire Timothy Small. We discuss the early days of growing up in Milan, working for Vice Italy, helping to start many magazines and projects and ultimately what it takes to be fully immersed in media. Enjoy. My name is Timothy Small or Tim Small. Uh, I live in Milan. I'm uh, I'm Italian, even if my name doesn't sound like it, because my dad's English. Uh, but I grew up in Italy, and I've been working in Italy, I guess, for the past, let's say, 15 years, as a journalist, as an editor, as a magazine editor. Uh, I've founded a few magazines. Uh, Currently, right now, I'm the creative director uh, in a group of uh, communication agencies that deal with digital and deal with the uh, production of uh, video mostly. And I'm a writer for a few magazines and uh, working on a couple of uh, new editorial projects at this moment uh, that I can't get into too much detail about. But let's just say I'm like a kind of like a general media person. Nice. Very cool. And you, were you. Um... <laughs> where where in Italy were you born and where are you currently? I was born in Milan, uh, in northern Italy, and I'm currently living in Milan. Um, and, uh, you know, my, uh, yeah, sounds weird when I say it. I lived in England for a while and I lived in the States for a while, but I'm, I'm back in Milan now. Nice. And what, what was your, uh, you know, what was it like growing up in Milan and, you know, you, you, uh, mentioned that you visited LA before. So you've been over here to the States and, um, to London, yeah. obviously. So just kind of, um, I guess the differences, the things that you enjoyed about Italy and Milan specifically, and you know, why it differs from the rest of the world. Well, you know, it's weird to have a critical thought about your, the place you're born in and the place you grow up in because you always have some sort of bias towards it you have some sort of roast tinted glasses towards it or you know depending on how you grow up in that place you, you end up either like making it into this big evil place or into kind of loving it and right now I'm in a place I'm in a in a place in my life where I'm kind of loving the city I grew up in you know I'm getting older so I feel like maybe that's also what's happening is that I start to see things around me more more fondly I start to give meaning to to maybe things that don't really have meaning, but hmm. yeah, I guess, I guess Milan's a good place. It's a nice city. It's interesting. It's not too big. Um, so that you, you, you feel like you can feel like you belong here. Um, you know, it's hard to feel like you belong, uh, in, in huge cities, you know, it's easier to feel like you're kind of just, a just a tiny, you know, little speck of sand or something. Um, at least I felt that way when I was in London. I, I just, I just couldn't get over the fact that it was so, so huge, you know? Um, but you know, Milan is an interesting place cause it's, uh, it's part of an international network of cities. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, and people who live in Milan who are not from Milan. There's a lot of people who live here from, uh, uh, but have moved here from other countries or from other parts of Italy. So it's got that sense of being a, kind of a cosmopolitan place and it's got a culture, it's got a history, it's got publishing, it's got TV, it's got advertising, it's got media, uh, a lot of really big uh, book publishing houses in, in the history of Italy are, are, are here in Milan. So there is an intellectual element to the city. There's a strong cultural element to the city. Obviously, you know, there is some uh, really big... Uh, industries that are that are based here you know the fashion industry and and uh, the design industry have have really big important brands here in Milan which really mean what it means is that there's a lot of people that interact with other people from big cities at high levels in 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 Milan but at the other hand on the other hand 
it it doesn't have the all that uh, some of the drawbacks that some of these really massive cities have, in my opinion. As in that, it still feels kind of personal. It still feels like you can really get to know the place, and it still feels like it's got an element of 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 being here to stay. Uh, and the people, a lot of people are here, have been here for a while. I feel sometimes, you know, when you're in London or or New York, or even in LA, I guess you meet people and you're like, you know, this guy's going to move in a year, you know. <laughs> and I think that kind of changes the energy of a place for the good and the bad, you know. In a city where a lot of people just come for a year or so, there's a lot of energy, a lot of people that are like, you know, excited about being there. Um, and they want to go out and they want to meet people, but maybe they don't stay there enough to build stuff. Uh, and Milan is kind of halfway there. So it's, it's got some of the drawbacks of a smaller city uh, in that sometimes it's a bit close-minded. Sometimes it can be a bit provincial. Sometimes, uh, you know, you, it feels like a city that is not at the level of those big international cities. But at the same time, I, I feel like it's a good balance. So, yeah, I guess I'd say that. Yeah, definitely. Has that um, contributed, you know, with more of the, uh, you know, your creative spark and what kind of drew you to wanting to start magazines and get into publishing and, you know, that whole avenue of uh, creative, um, you know, expression? Has that kind of stemmed from growing up in Milan and seeing the different industries that you were speaking of and different avenues that people express themselves, whether it's through fashion, whether it's through, um, you know, just all the publishing houses that you spoke of and this uh, city that is, you know, sort of the center of a lot of entertaining and cool things that are happening. Did that contribute to your um, sort of inspiration and desire to want to go into something like that? Was that always something that you looked at and admired and wanted to pursue in some way? Well, I mean, it's, it's tough to answer this question because you never know how much these sort of things affect you on a subconscious level. Uh, you know, like that old saying that if you, if you grow up in Rome, you're bound to be a fatalist because you're surrounded by a fallen empire. Right. So you're like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, of course, you know, uh, but that's, and that stuff, it, it's not like, oh, I'm from Rome. So I, I'm aware that things don't last. Uh, I don't think people think about that consciously, but it's kind of there, you know, in a way like, uh, so maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe the answer to your question is that I imagine that on some level, being in the city has had some kind of effect uh, on me growing up. At the same time, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you know, I went to concerts. I, I went to, I, I read magazines. I, uh, I, <laughs> I played video games. I watched movies. I read a bunch of books, pretty much like any kid in any other city would do. You know, it, I did the usual kid of the 90s stuff and then uh, i guess the other thing that really that maybe changed for me was that i moved to to the uk when i was 18 and i stayed there until i was 23 and i guess that when i moved there i kind of started to as it happens when you move to another country you start to realize that the things that you gave for granted you took for granted uh are not to be taken for granted so I guess that that was in a way where that in England is where I decided that I wanted to work in media, that I wanted to work in magazines. And, but, you know, growing up, I really wanted to write. That was my main thing. I wanted to write books or, you know, write screenplays or something. I just wanted to, that was my main thing. I, I like to read and I wanted to write. And I guess everything else kind of just happened along the way, you know, but that was my initial uh, first, uh, forward motion was to, to, to try and write. Sure. And did it stem from, I mean, did your parents write or, or did they have any, um, you know, like, did they do anything associated with the arts or writing and, or was it simply something just that you, you know, picked up books and started reading and really appreciating sort of the art form and kind of just admired that? And is that where it stemmed from? Something more along those lines? You know, I don't know. I mean, my parents read uh, always. My my, they all they all read all the time. They had books. Uh, they were always reading books. 
if we'd go to the beach in the summer, they'd sit on the beach and read. And, you know, they'd go to bed and read. And Saturday afternoons, they'd read. So I'd do that too. Um, but neither of my parents are writers or journalists or artists or creatives in any way, really. I guess I just really liked books uh, as, a, as a kid. Uh, I really like the idea of, of, uh, of sort of the power that, that you could, that you could feel when you were just, you know, creating a whole new world in your head. Yeah. I like that. Sure. And then when it comes to, uh, more of the, you know, starting the magazines and stuff, what was the first magazine that you either, you know, worked for or started or what kind of sparked that, uh, you know, drive and motivation that, you know, still plays a role in what you do today. Right. So it's weird. Like when I was, um, when I was in, uh, in university, my last year of university, I had to write my thesis and, uh, I remember that I was thinking about maybe becoming a professor, uh, just taking that academic career. Um, Cause I kind of liked the idea that you'd basically get paid to just read books and write books. I like that. And you could have this wonderful kind of purely academic life where you just read stuff and come up with ideas and that was it. And then I realized that's the summer that I had to write my thesis. I had this realization where I was like, man, like, if I'm going to write this thing, uh, maybe five people will ever read it because the academic world is very closed, you know? Mm. Um, and at that moment, a friend of mine, like in, when I was having this period of realization, a friend of mine handed me a copy of Vice magazine. Uh, and it was so stupid and so funny and so ridiculous. And this was in like 2004. Uh, and so just, you know, the opposite of what I was doing with my thesis, that I kind of fell in love with it. And out of the blue, I just emailed the, the vice people in London. and was like, hey, you know, if you're looking for someone to help, uh, I guess I could help you guys. And they replied to me and they were looking for interns. And uh, that's my that was my first job. I was an intern at Vice UK in London in 2005. Very cool. And then the... Uh, um... yeah. With uh, Vice, was it something that you, I guess, the international market, was it in Italian? Was it English? Was it translated in it a different English. way? At, at the time, it was just, I think at the time there was Vice in, in Brooklyn. Right. For sure. Because that was, you know, that was where it started. And there was obviously Vice UK because, I you know, I, I was working there. And uh, But Vice UK hadn't been around for long. I remember that when I started there, it only, it only been around maybe for a year. Like I was an intern there, but there were only like another five people in the whole office. Mm. So it was just, you know, we had to pretty much do everything. <laughs> and I think maybe there was Vice Japan and maybe Vice Scandinavia. So it, there wasn't this situation where we, that it is now where there's like, you know, 300 different editions of, of Vice around the world. So I started working there at Vice UK in London. And after kind of a year... Um, it was so weird. I remember I was in, I was in the office. It was, it was, it was a weird day. For some reason, everyone was out and I was the only one in the office and the phone was ringing and I picked up the phone and this guy was on the other side of the phone and he was like, hello, my name is Andrea and I would like to open Vice in Italy. Who can I talk to? And I replied to him in Italian and he freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and that's, and then, you know, a year after that, uh, Vice Italy had started and I was the editor and I was 23. Wow. That's so, yeah, amazing. It was weird. Just a weird, weird life. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. What was the, um, you know, kind of when you said there was only five people working at the Vice, uh, UK, um, offices, what exactly did you do? Cause you had to have done a bunch of things, right? Um, writing, editing, online, everything. 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 Wow. Everything. Everything. I don't think there even was an online. This is so long ago that I think the the only thing that was there wasn't even vice.com. The website was called viceland.com and it was viceland.com/uk and you'd go on the website and there wasn't even you just get the PDFs of the printed magazine. 
we would upload the PDF every month. And that is it. And then maybe like a few months after that, we opened the Viceland blog. <laughs> this is how long ago this was. This was uh, literally 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, I remember just to let you, just to let you know how, how, how long ago this was. Um, there was a kid who worked with us and his name was Dom. I remember Dominic. And one night we went out drinking and he came to the pub with a t-shirt with a YouTube logo on it. And we were all like, what's that? And he was like, oh, it's this website where you can get, you know, videos on the internet. That's how long ago it was. Wow. (laughs) So yeah, I pretty much had to do a lot of stuff. We had, I had to help whatever I could, you know, I, I wrote some music reviews. I did a couple of interviews. I wrote the first article I ever wrote. uh, And forgive me if I'm anticipating your next question. But my first article uh, was a review of the 50 Cent video game. Oh, interesting. Which was called, yeah, it was called (laughs) Get Rich or Die Trying. Uh And you played as 50 Cent in the video game and you had to shoot a bunch of people in it. And I gave it, I did a, it was a funny, ridiculous review of a pretty ridiculous video game. That was my first start. Nice. That's a cool introduction, I think, to, um, you know, journalism in a way where it isn't necessarily this uh, super serious form of journalism that you would see at, you know, other publications. Um, but it was still, you know, obviously right now, you know, Vice has grown and you were sort of at the ground level of that and seeing the, development of this company that was very small but has become you know this global massive uh industry almost and it's something where they have different avenues and they kind of are considered one of the top media companies that you know they win emmys every year and everything the um you know has that sort of laid a foundation for how you sort of i guess view journalism and wanting to start magazines and different things like that has that been the forefront of it as taking it you know, seriously in the sense that you want to do a great job, but at the same time not being limited in the fact that you can have fun and enjoy what you're doing as well. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm working uh, with a great, wonderful group of people and we're launching a new production company. We're making videos and we're making... Uh, shoots uh, and I'm loving it and it's a production company that was started two months before I joined the the group that I'm working with and I think part of the reason I'm loving it is because uh, it's a startup you know we're launching it it's we're starting at a very low level and we have a lot of potential upside and I think that Having that experience advice as my first job experience, I think that first job experience is very formative for people, uh, more so than most people realize. And it kind of, in a way, sets you on a path. And it's never the way that you think it is. It's not like, oh, I start here, so I'll be on this path for the rest of my life. It's just that you absorb ways of working and a sort of energy and a sort of you know, posture that you take. And that becomes kind of your default thing. So then obviously you can change and you can have other experiences, but in a way that becomes sort of like a, you know, like a a thread that runs through everything you do. And I've realized this because I have launched so many magazines and I've launched so many activities in these 15 years. Uh, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not like one of those serial startuppers that has, you know, a hundred startups, but in terms of, uh, you know, um, the publishing world, I've certainly launched quite a bunch of stuff. And I think that it's because, as you said, um, my first experience was, um, like that. I, I, you know, it was just five people and in an office in London and then a year later, it was just three of us in an office in Milan. And then, you know, two years later, there were 20 of us in Milan and 40 in London. And, you know, five years later, there were 50 of us in Milan and 100 in London. And it was just like growing and growing and growing. And I kind of grew up in, in that environment. I kind of grew up professionally 
at least for the first seven years of my uh, of my so far career, uh, were spent in this continuous forward motion of growth of starting some something small that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, uh, the first year advice, as I said, we didn't even have a website, and then after that we had the website and then the website became even bigger than the print magazine. And then we started to launch the video channel. So, and this was all stuff that I just, I didn't know how to do. I just learned along the way. And I think that's another thing that has kind of stayed with me is that I'm happy to, uh, to learn new things. I'm, I'm quite at ease. If you're telling, if you tell me, okay, you've got to learn this new thing now for a year. Uh, I've been doing it, so I kind of like it. And I think that's, um, that's, I think that's why your first few years at a job, they really have a huge effect on you. And I, I've only recently come to realize this about me. So yeah, great question, man. Mm, definitely. Does it, um, you know, I think it's interesting to have something where you're presented with these, uh, you know, different mediums in which you can work on, whether it's writing and doing reviews for certain things. And then, you know, um, you know, video and multimedia, which is what you're currently doing a multimedia company. Was there ever a point in these, you know, when you're learning something new, has it been something that was very difficult or something that seemed like a very big, you know, obstacle in your way when you were doing this, that it seemed insurmountable at times. And, you know, what were those challenges like and how did you, you know, overcome them? Well, uh, I guess everything is, is equally difficult when you don't know how to do it. You know, uh, you have to kind of learn it and you have to just kind of be, uh, you have to be, I think the right mixture and I haven't always been, and I've come to learn this as well, but you have to be the right mixture between kind of, uh, arrogant and energetic and believing in yourself and at the same time be humble enough to realize that you don't really know what you're doing mm. so that kind of level that you have to keep because if you're too humble you're like oh i can't do that and you won't even try if you're too arrogant you'll be like yeah i got this and then you'll just fail spectacularly so you kind of have to keep that kind of level-headed uh approach you know where you're like i know how to do this i don't know how to do that let me figure out you know this new thing. And I guess a lot of it also goes through having the right uh, people around you, obviously, you know, like when we started the Vice uh, video, the first thing we did was we hired some producers, we hired some video makers, we hired some editors, and then you just basically look at these people work and ask a hundred billion questions. And then you kind of try and figure it out, you know? So, uh, I guess everything is, is, is just as tough. Um, in terms of insurmountable stuff, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I haven't yet done anything where it was like, uh, uh, completely baffled, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, uh, I guess, uh, I also haven't, you know, tried to do anything that is completely different from stuff that I've already done. So, you know, when you're a magazine editor and you write, articles and then you move from that to produce uh you know video segments i mean obviously it's different but at the same time it's all about editing you know you have little pieces you have to put them together and you have to realize how to make a good story out of the little pieces so obviously technically it's different but it's similar enough that i think you can translate one skill into the other uh, and it's the same for uh for all this other stuff i'm doing i guess um I guess, you know, I haven't really tried to do any, uh, anything that I know that I would be completely uh, terrible at. So uh, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, but that's all I got. No, sure. Totally. I think um, also what I think is interesting is, you know, working for all these different, you know, publications and doing various things in your job and having so much to learn along the way, you know, requires uh, a ton of time and effort has it made it difficult to have a like personal life outside of work is that sometimes something that's difficult to juggle when you're trying to 
start these different magazines and, you know, learn all these different aspects of multimedia and journalism, does that ever become something that's difficult? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, there there's a reason why, uh, you know, journalists or media people all hang out with other media people because you just end up hanging out with your colleagues because, you know, you work crazy hours and uh, yeah, it does become tough to balance those two things. And I wish I could say that I've learned how to do that, but I have not. <laughs> It's uh, it's one of the hardest things. Forgive me for that sound. That's my cat. She, she'll she'll come around and she'll just meow sometimes. So I hope that's okay to your listeners. No, it's fine. Yeah, no problem. Does it um, you know, has it after you kind of worked at Vice for that period of time? Was it difficult to move on and to go on to work at a different magazine, or was that um an easy decision to make and something that felt right at the time? Well, at the time it felt right to me. And I guess, you know, I'd seen the company change so much that, uh, at some point I was like, uh, I I just felt that I wanted to change things up. I'd been there for seven years, uh, seven years from when you're 23 to 30 is a long period of time. You go through a lot of changes. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I I can't really say that I was mature at the time because I really, when I look back at it now, I really think that I wasn't at all. But I guess I just, I got to a point where I realized that there was nowhere to go for me. You know, I'd been the editor-in-chief for seven years. I'd been running their video stuff. I'd been running the website. And I guess I just wanted something different. So I kind of quit without really having another job. And I just started freelancing. I think looking back on it, part of it was also that I was a bit, maybe a bit burned out. I wanted to not have to run anything for a while. <laughs> so I, I kind of freelanced for a while. And then I, uh, uh, Carlo Antonelli, who's a good friend of mine and a sort of a, a sort of a mentor kind of figure, I guess. He was the editor-in-chief of, of Rolling Stone, and I used to write for them a lot, Rolling Stone Italy. I used to write for them when, while I was editing Vice. And he just called up, he'd just been called up by Conde Nast to be the editor-in-chief of the relaunched Italian GQ. And so I signed up there as staff writer, and I did that for a year. Um, and meanwhile, I was working on, on all my video stuff. I made a music video. I made a couple of fashion videos. I started working on a documentary. I did a, a little, a, a few other projects during that year. So I, I, I just, I think now looking back that I just wanted to, to do my own thing. I think that I started to feel like, you know, Vice is a place with a big personality. It's a brand with a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, adjectives. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not any other place. It's vice. Mm. And I was afraid that if I'd stay there too long, I would sort of become this kind of like vice brand extension <laughs> and not be my own person. So that's, I think that's part of the reason why I, I left was that I kind of, I, I, I felt like this vice brand, this vice logo, I, you know, I just, uh, it wasn't for me. I, I, I wasn't in that mindset where I wanted to walk around with a, you know, with a, with a vice tattoo. <laughs> That's yeah. almost what I felt like what was happening to me, you know? Sure. So, uh, so looking back, I think I wanted to do that. And I think that part of it was also that I was kind of uh, maybe a bit tired of all that responsibility at that age. Maybe I wasn't, uh, you know, maybe I needed a bit of a break. So I did that for, I went to help Carlo with GQ for a year. And that was nice. It was a fun year. Uh, being a freelance, uh, if you have a steady gig, which I did, you know, because I, I, I was hired as a staff writer. I get paid every month. Not a lot of money, but regardless on how many articles I wrote, I would get paid. And that was a great year. I went swimming at the swimming pool every day. I learned how to cook. Uh, it was good. So I think that, that you know that work life balance yeah that was a good year in those terms but it only lasted a year for that year um just quickly i'm i'm curious what the 
you know, what did you learn about yourself during that period of time? You know, as far as, I mean, a couple of things that you touched on is when you left Vice, you said that you felt like you, you were mature, but now reflecting back on it, maybe you weren't as mature as you thought you were and getting burned out on doing something that was um, very, you know, like a big important job at the magazine. What did you learn outside of, you know, cooking and various skills like that? Was it something that you learned about yourself and who you were as a person during that period of time where you were allowed to do maybe a different type of growth than uh, like a professional growth? Well, I think I realized at the time that I wanted, uh, I wanted to, to do something that was mine. Um, I think that's also important to me now. Uh, to feel like what you're doing in some way belongs to you. Uh, and I think that when you're the editor-in-chief of a magazine, uh, it gets really hard to not get swallowed up by the identity of the magazine. So I learned that, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything too drastic, but I learned that, and, you know, and then I ended up editing other magazines. I was the editor-in-chief of Esquire Italy for almost three years. And that was only a few years after I left Vice. But I think that what I'm getting to now is that um, being the editor-in-chief of a magazine, uh, you have to really be ready to kind of, uh, you have to really take a step back from uh, who you are and you have to kind of play that role um, and sometimes it's tough, not that easy. That's a lot of responsibility. Um, and obviously you try and do it as professionally as you can. And obviously you try and put your spin on things. You try and in a way, uh, you know, do the job the best you can, you know, bringing to that job, bringing to that title and to that brand, your own little spin on things, your own little flavor, you know? Um, but it's very difficult to manage that, that sensation because you go in and, you know, uh, in 2017, I was hired by Hearst Media to be the editor-in-chief of Esquire Italy and to basically launch Esquire Italy because there was no Esquire in Italy before that. So once again, I was launching a new magazine in Italy. Once again, a title with a lot of history that did not originate from Italy. Uh, and so once again, I, I was in the same position of having to kind of, you know, wear that, wear that uniform, um, in some way, be that, be that magazine. Um, and it gets really tough to, you, you put a lot of yourself into it and you start to feel like it's your thing, it's yours, but it's not. So that's, I think the biggest tension uh, that I felt looking back, I think that's the biggest tension that I felt when I left Vice. And I think that the year after that, when I could just focus on writing, what I learned about myself is that for as much as I love to write, I don't know if I can do just that because, and here again, maybe it's because of what happened to me as, as editor in chief of Vice, but you know, I was in an office and I spoke to 40 people every day. And you're moving around, you're doing interviews, you're going out, you're doing shoots, you're having meetings, you're talking to people all the time. And then you, if you're like a freelance writer, <laughs> it's a completely different lifestyle. You end up being alone a lot, a lot of the time. You end up sitting at your desk alone at home or in your little studio and it's tough. So what I learned about myself in that year is that I work best in a team or at least a two-person team. So all the other magazines I did after that, I always looked for other people uh, first. Um, you know, I after my year at GQ, I, la I launched uh, a sports magazine, an online sports magazine called Ultimo Uomo, which is like a long-form online sports magazine. It was a bit like inspired by Grantland, let's say. Um, and, uh, cause I've always been a huge sports fan since I was a kid too. Uh, and, and I really felt like I wanted to do something with sports writing, but first thing I did was I tried to find a group of people to do it. And I found a co-founder and I found a co-editor in chief and we did it together. 
because I think that that year alone, working as a freelancer, I kind of really realized that I do need to dialogue with people, uh, both to do the best job I can do, but also for my mental health. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm curious when you, um, you know, one little thing you touched on, and then I want to discuss the sports magazine as well. But one thing you said was the, you know, the idea of starting a magazine in Italy that isn't from Italy that already has a big um, history somewhere else. Do you think um, a couple of things? One, does it feel like you are, you know, was it a difficult task to rebrand these magazines and sort of make it something that was different and, but also holding on to what it originally came from. And then on the other side of that, do you feel, you know, despite the fact that you had to kind of, you know, not necessarily start like a new magazine or be part of something new yet to kind of work on something that already was created. Do you think that was a positive or a negative? Do you feel, you know, maybe you weren't, you wouldn't be able to, to have gotten these opportunities if you lived in New York or wherever these magazines came from? Do you feel like living in Italy in a place that was, you know, starting this new thing gave you different opportunities that you may not have been presented with? Or do you think it almost was uh, negative for you because you, you know, almost had to take something that was someone else's and try to rebrand it every time? Well, yeah, I think a bit of both, you know, to be honest with you. Like, I think uh, a bit of both. Um, I think when you're in a, I think this is true for any country. Um, Maybe not the U.S., I guess. But, you know, there's there's so many, so many magazines out there in the world and some of them are very successful and some of them are so successful that other countries decide uh, either other countries there have some media groups or media people that decide to kind of buy the license for that magazine or it's the publishing house that started the magazine that decides to expand to other countries um, and I think that in a, in a way it's because maybe you know the idea behind that specific magazine was so powerful and so strong and so winning that it might you know it might translate to other countries so I guess in a way, yeah, being in a country like Italy means that, you know, being in a country that is not central to the international media game means that if tomorrow there is an amazing magazine that is launched in Germany, sure, why not do an Italian version of it? Uh, so, yeah, that that's true. At the same time, you know, there are also Italian magazines that in the past few years that have been very successful and since expanded to other countries to Spain or to UK or to Germany. So, uh, so in answer to your question, yeah, uh, obviously living in a country like Italy and also maybe also the fact that, you know, that I am kind of, you know, mixed international culturally the other countries, you know, that I, I am bilingual, uh, that has certainly helped me personally. Um, on these projects, because again, both Vice and Esquire, both American magazines, I know American culture. I've been working for American companies for a long time. So I think that that has helped me. At the same time, the other thing that you were saying is also true. When you are uh, adapting another title to, to another country where that title did not, you know, originate from, and this is true, I guess, for Vogue uh, as much as it is for, you know, uh, Vice or or really any other magazine. Um, in a way, you have to reinterpret that magazine for the country you're in. It, that's part of the deal. Otherwise, you could just get the original magazine and just stick a different price on it. Uh, you know, in euros and instead of dollars or pounds and then sell it. And that's what happens to a lot of, uh, let's say, fashion magazines where the language of the words inside the magazine is not as important. So a lot of amazing English uh, fashion magazines are sold in Italian newsstands or Spanish or French. You know, you can buy Vogue Italy in New York. Uh, So that is certainly true because fashion obviously... It's such a visual medium that it, it it kind of transcends the language barrier. Now, when it comes to writing, it becomes very, very complicated because 
<laughs> let's say the let's take for example um, something like Vice, right? Something like Vice is, was born in a very specific country, in a very specific place, by a very specific group of people who were culturally the products of their time and their place. Uh, and they create this magazine, which in some way captures something that no other magazine has managed to capture. It becomes something unique. And it is unique because of the people who founded it and because of their heads and their culture and their backgrounds and their ideas. And you know how all this comes together creates that specific unique magazine. And then you take that and you're like, okay, let's put this in this other country that has a completely different history, a completely different culture, a different sense of humor, a different sense of what is right and wrong, a different sense of what is uh, funny and what isn't. Uh, and, and it's tough. It is tough. So you do have to kind of do this, this balancing act between the DNA of the magazine and the, and the new, let's say, the new soil that you're planting it in. So in a way, the plant that then comes out is going to be a result of the seed that you plant, but it's also going to be a result of what what type of soil you plant it in. So I think that um, there's always that kind of tension with international titles. And I think maybe with the exception of, of fashion magazines, because that's a bit different because it's a more visual and a slightly different medium. Sure. Which is not to say that there aren't huge difference between, let's say, Vogue Italy and Vogue UK. Obviously, they're hugely different. Mm. Nice. And then going into the, you know, when you wanted to start the sports magazine, what was the, I mean, Italy, so I'm assuming you're a football, soccer fan. Is that the main sport over yeah. there? Right. Main sport over here. AC yeah. Milan and Inter Milan, right? Are the main teams in Milan? There are Syria. two teams in Milan, and AC Milan is my team uh, that I've always supported since I was a kid. Very cool. I was a, I was a fan of AC Milan for a, a while. I became a, I'm more of a Chelsea fan now, but I did watch uh, Milan back. I'm trying to think of, I guess I think it was Maldini, Pirlo. Uh, Oh, Gattuso okay. was on yeah. the team. That was like a while ago, probably yeah, early sure. two thousand six, two thousand seven, maybe. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That we were. That was a good team. That, that was, was a phenomenal. Amazing. Yeah, Champions League, yeah, yeah. and then did really, really well. That was a great, great year. So I'm a big, I'm a big soccer fan and football fan, I guess, which isn't too common over here in America because there's so many, you know, other sports there. People are interested in football, American football, and baseball and basketball and all that. But did that, um. You know, in Italy, growing up and being an AC Milan fan and then wanting to start a magazine that was sports-centric, uh, like what? how did that process or what did that look like? And, you know, was it a little bit of you wanting to do something that allowed you to have, um, I don't know, access to this whole world that you were always, like, fascinated with? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that, and part of it is that I just fell in love with Grantland uh, I used to read it obsessively. I thought it was genius. And I just wanted to do something similar in Italy. Uh, that was my, if I have to be perfectly honest, that was my main thing. I wanted to write about sports and I wanted to read about sports in a way that at the time didn't really happen in Italy. Um, it, at least in, to my awareness, you know, I'm not saying that no one was out there doing that kind of thing. I'm sure there were a bunch of people doing that thing. But what I felt was that in mainstream sports media, that type of long form writing where you could kind of, you know, really, really get into it. Um, and when I say get into it, I mean, in any way, get into it in terms of, you know, uh, writing an amazing, heartfelt, emotional piece about a single ball player. Or which is, you know, part of really part of a great American tradition in sports. And at the same time, also maybe, you know, doing some really in-depth tactical, technical stuff, uh, or even do something that was just ridiculous and fun and really, and I felt, I felt that those three things were three things that Grantland did really well. And those three things were three things that I could not find in Italian sports journalism, because in Italy, we have this 
basically this very unique situation in terms of sports media, almost unique in the in terms of the world. Like the the best selling newspaper in Italy only deals with sport. And and there's another two daily newspapers in Italy that only deal with sport. And they sell very well. And this is, to my mind, crazy. <laughs> Completely crazy. No other country that I know of is in this is 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 set up like this. I think maybe Spain has a similar thing, but the numbers don't add up. There's this historical, incredible uh Italian newspaper called La Gazzetta dello Sport which is uh printed very famously on pink paper and it's just about sports and it's mostly about soccer it just reflects let's say Italian sports interest so when there is the Giro d'Italia which is the big cycling championship there's going to be a lot of that and when there is a Formula 1 uh there's going to be a lot of that so it, it generally follows Italian uh, Italian sports uh culture but uh, the thing is that these three daily papers are what they are. They are daily papers. So they focus on giving you the news. They focus on telling you what happened yesterday during the game. They focus on, uh, you know, maybe trade rumors and gossip. And because they are pay- they're daily papers, they don't really have that kind of magazine periodical approach. Like, you know, maybe you know, a wonderful 8,000 word article on, on the Dodgers. You're not going to find that in Italy on any football team. It's just not, it just doesn't happen because it's, it's more, uh, it was always more historically more centered on quick daily news. So I wanted to do something that was the exact opposite of that. And I, uh, I got together with this guy called Daniele Manuzia who is the current editor-in-chief of Ultimo Uomo. And we founded this magazine together, which was an online magazine. We only published initially three articles a week. And the, the only rule was that they had to be very, very long. <laughs> and they could be one of these three things. They could be either very long because they were very, you know, kind of in-depth emotional portraits about uh, athletes or teams or, you know, or stories that we, we felt were really powerful. Or they could be really in-depth tactical analysis, or they could be just silly, silly, stupid, funny stuff like a huge list of all the ugliest football players' houses. We'd go <laughs> on the internet and look for their houses and see which, which, who had the worst sense of interior design. And then we made this huge list. But then after that, we'd write this incredible article about, you know, uh, about this 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 guy that had to be the next Zidane and wasn't, you know. Mm. And then we'd write, you know, a twenty-five uh, hundred-word article about exactly how Bayern Munich played with their wing backs. And it was great. We had a great, great, great fun. And we only we did not do only soccer. We did a lot of NBA too at the beginning. Uh, and then we, 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 as we grew, we started talking about other sports as well, tennis, and uh, we did a bit of American football, a bit, a bit of baseball, a bit of um, Formula One, and cycling, and other stuff. And and it was it was great fun, and it became really big. It worked really well. Like the first month, we had twenty thousand hits, and three months later, we had half a million hits and two years later we had four million hits wow so it was working really well and uh yeah and then it was bought by sky sports we sold it to sky sports nice after i guess maybe four years that was in there yeah and then i quit and i went to the esquire but in the meanwhile i started working with this other media company and we set up this this uh, publishing arm where we launched a bunch of magazines and besides Ultimo Uomo, we launched other magazines, some of them in collaboration with brands and some of them were, uh, you know, our own thing. We launched this magazine called Prismo, which is the name of my cat that you heard meowing before, <laughs> which was similar to Ultimo Uomo. Uh, it really started as an offshoot of Ultimo Uomo because initially Ultimo Uomo was sports and pop culture. And then we kind of separated the two and Ultimo Uomo became just sports and Prisma became our pop culture magazine with a similar approach, very long articles. 
and uh, and very weird articles. And it started off as a kind of a a more uh, let's say quote unquote normal <laughs> uh, uh, pop culture magazine, and then it got into really weird stuff and also quite legendary uh, for a while. It was uh, a lot of people really liked it. We had a really strong community of readers and uh, people really dug it. But then after a few years, uh, we had to close it. And because uh, we just, the media company I was working with, they really couldn't. Uh, they, were, they weren't really good at selling ads. It wasn't really their business model. And we had a tough time trying to, to make the numbers work. So we sold Ultimo on to Sky Sport and I ended up at Hearst launching Esquire. Right on. I'm curious, um, real quick on the, you talked initially about the daily magazines that were sports oriented, that were very short stories that didn't necessarily have, you know, these long articles in it. And you wanted to start something that was different than that. So the exact opposite, right? And yeah. You know, you're taking a risk by doing something that isn't necessarily what everyone else has the proven method in a way, right? The proven method was to do these daily short article stuff and it was popular and it was what everyone wanted to read. The, I guess the idea to start something that's the exact opposite, you know, and wanting to do something that was more long form and not daily and, you know, the stories and the writing and everything is a lot different. It requires a little bit more engagement. Do you think that that contributed to you building a fan base and having it become so popular and big as it did because it was very different than that? Or do you think that, you know, it's a combination of having something that was very different, but also just, you know, the content that you put out and how that was uh, able to build a base in the way that it did. I'm just curious what, you know, you think contributes to, you're doing something exactly opposite of what, you know, is the popular thing to do and becoming so successful with it. Well, I guess, you know, uh, uh, we were kind of lucky in a way, because I think that the, what, what we did is we just went with our gut. We didn't really think about it. Um, from the point of view of an analysis of the marketplace or whatever, mm. uh, we just thought we like this type of writing. We're not seeing it in this country. Uh, we know people that, and that, that I think this for me was a very crucial moment. Um, there was a wonderful article published on Grantland about, about Napoli, the soccer team from Naples. At the time, Napoli was playing a really beautiful soccer. And it was, it, it was a really cool team. And there was this really, uh, you know, just a nice article that came out on Grandland talking about how Napoli was a really cool hipster team. And I, I realized that a bunch of people I knew were sharing it on their social media. And I was like, it, it felt so strange to me that a bunch of Italians who live in Naples would share articles written by a guy who lived in Oklahoma City about their soccer team saying, I love this article. And they were publishing it in English. So I was like, man, there's people out there who really love this type of writing, but we're just, they're just not getting it. Mm. So the idea was to very simply just, it wasn't like a huge, you know, you know what, kind of a eureka moment. The idea was we wanted to write that type of stuff and no magazine would publish that type of stuff in Italy. So we just started our own magazine to publish what we wanted to write and what we wanted to read. And I guess that there were a few hundred thousand people that felt the same way. Um, and that was that really. I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not, it's not anything different, I guess, than, than to any kind of intuition that leads to a, to a little successful activity. You know, it's not like we changed the world. Uh, it's not like, you know, we invented, uh, anything, um, you know, mind, mind blowing. We just felt like people were going to like it and we tried to do it and, uh, we were right. <laughs> uh, we were lucky that we were right. I guess, uh, at the same time, I think we kind of took advantage of a situation that was 
evidently lacking within the Italian media landscape at that point. So I guess, you know, like if you were to to realize that in the U.S., you know, not that it's the case, but let's say hypothetically, you were to realize that in the U.S., no one was publishing a, a, a blog or a website or a magazine that talked in a cool way about comic books and you really liked comic books, you might call your other comic book, comic book nerd buddies and be like, hey, let's start the magazine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no one's doing it. Let's do it. And it was just so obvious, you know, it was, it felt a bit, you know, uh, the opportunity was just there, you know. Italy is a country with a lot of people who really love sports. And I guess people who really love sports don't necessarily only like a sort of a daily news approach to sports. And there have been in the history of Italy a lot of really amazing magazines that have been more in-depth. But at that time, they just weren't, you know, uh, they weren't around. They weren't at their best. Or maybe they weren't uh, really publishing much digitally. So I guess we took advantage of that situation. And I guess we were a bit lucky. And I guess in a way, we're also kind of smart to go with our gut. Sure. I think as we um, wrap up a little bit here, I'm curious if you have you know advice for someone who wanted to not necessarily go into journalism per se, but just someone who wants to be creative and do you know things that are similar to what you've done as far as you know change the scope of you know, the path that they initially set for themselves and doing magazines and different things like that, what would be your advice um, to someone who wants to get into multimedia and wanting to do similar things? Um, well, I just, I guess, you know, you, you don't have to be afraid to, to work hard and to work a lot of hours. Uh, and you don't have to uh, be afraid of putting a lot of yourself into it. It's going to be heartbreaking at some t- sometimes, you know, like anything where you put a lot of yourself into it. It might be sad or disappointing at times, or you might get angry and you're going to make mistakes because that's just part of it. Uh, but I guess if you're doing something that you kind of really love doing, um, I guess that's the best thing to do, you know, no matter how heartbreaking it is or how tough or, or, you know, complicated or stressful. I guess my advice is just do, do stuff that, that feels right with you, you know, do stuff that, that you're, uh, that you want to do and just work at it and keep doing it. And eventually you'll get good at it, whatever it is. And, uh, the best way to do that is to just, you know, uh, believe in yourself you know, that with the building in yourself, but this time, uh, not much. Just that's where you're uh, feeling good about. I guess that's, you know, it sounds like ridiculous Hollywood movie platitudes, but um, there is something, I think they became platitudes because there's something to it when you say that, you know, believe in yourself and be true to who you are. Those are in a way really the things that we've heard a hundred times, but there's, there's a truth to it. You know, um, I would say if you want to get in this line of work and if you want to be a kind of a creative person who works in media, if you want to be a journalist, whatever it is you want to do, just make sure that you're doing something that you love and just keep doing it. And if people around you say, yeah, that's a bad idea. You know, maybe they're right, but maybe they're not. So just keep doing it if you can. Um, try not to spend too much money <laughs> because it's not the type of job where you make a lot of money. So, you know, that's also a piece of advice that I, I wish I had received a few years ago. <laughs> you know, you've got you to gotta learn to live well within your means. Uh, and uh, yeah, try, try and do stuff you love and believe in it. And at the same time, another thing that I think is important is um, find your thing, like whatever your thing is and just keep doing that. And it's not going to be easy because you don't know what your thing is until you've worked for a few years. But then after a while, you'll realize what your thing is. 
And once you figure that out, that's great. Like when you figure out what it is that you're actually good at, that's a really cool feeling. So just keep doing stuff until you find something that you feel really good about. And then just keep doing that. I guess that's my uh, (laughs) vague yet general yet hopefully useful advice coming straight from Italy. Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, Timothy, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. How can people, you know, connect with you and see the work that you're doing and, you know, either read your articles or see your videos or, you know, any, um, you know, any way to find out, you know, what you're doing and what you're up to. Sure. Well, I'm at yes, Tim small on Instagram. Uh, I don't really update my Instagram much and I will soon be putting up a website. I'm going to do this very nineties thing. Uh, actually no early 2000 thing <laughs> where I put up my personal website. Uh, and I guess, uh, a lot of my articles are in Italian, but hopefully you can find some of them in English too. If you look around the internet and just search for my name. Great. Perfect. Well, thank you so much once again for uh, sitting down with me. It's been a it's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Double Life. To stay up to date on what's happening with Tim and all the various projects he's got going on, you can follow him on Instagram at YesTimSmall. You can follow us at The Double Life Pod, and you stay up to date on what's happening with the show. Make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll see you in a little bit. Adios.